Hello, everyone, and welcome to Next Stop, a Victory Briefs podcast. I'm Lawrence, joined by Chris and Jacob Nails. We are a podcast discussing all things circuit, or I guess in this episode, more traditional Lincoln-Douglas debate, and we publish new episodes, um, whatever new topics come out, basically. Um, this is our 11th episode, and we'll be discussing the March-April childcare topic and our initial thoughts on it. Um, but before we discuss the topic, again, we wanted to remind you that we have a Google form linked in the description um, where you can submit feedback or suggestions for future topics, which we plan on getting to before the summer starts. Finally, thanks to Victor Brees for sponsoring this podcast. Victor Brees is a summer debate institute and publisher of debate materials, which you can learn more about at victorbrees.com. And we just published our initial LD staff list, which you can take a look at at vbidebate.com. All right, we'll discuss our uh, core thoughts on this topic after a short break. All right, so the March-April topic is resolved. The United States ought to guarantee universal childcare. And I'm sure we'll get into some of our thoughts about what universal childcare actually is, because like that is a kind of confusing term of art. But before we get there, um, one thing that Chris was talking about right before we started recording is that the topic of vote breakdown was kind of interesting. So um, remember that this year you can vote on a set of three topics for each topic slot, um, and there's three choices. And this one, it received a decent number of votes, actually, like over 500 coaches voted, over 12, uh, 1,100 students voted, but it only received 39% of the coach vote and 38% of the student vote, which, you know, is still a pretty big margin to win by. But given that the other topics on the slates were a positive right to reproduce and directive consumer pharma advertising, I'm shocked that this number is that low. Yeah, I agree with that. I thought that uh, among the three of them, this topic struck me as definitely the, the clear best topic uh, in terms of uh, having good ground on both sides, being a thing people understand, and also to being a thing that exists in the literature. One of those three topics, the positive right to reproduce one, is not even clearly a thing. I remember Googling it when the topic came out, and I was just like, are we sure this exists? Yeah, I mean, one thing that might explain that is, I guess, universal child care could be seen as sort of an issue kind of remote and boring to students, but that's the case for all of these, I think. <laughs> and at least the childcare topic, I think it was sort of a live political issue in the last year. But are you telling me that most high school students don't have a direct invested interest in having a positive right to reproduce? Hmm. Actually, you know, that's actually probably what the students, where more of the student votes went um, other than this topic would be my guess, rather than pharmaceutical advertising, because it just seems like more of a, like a, like a cultural sort of issue that students might be a little bit more engaged in. I will say both this topic, the the childcare topic, as well as the the direct to consumer advertising for pharmaceuticals uh, topic, both strike me as a bit more like PF topics than LD topics. They're just like nice current events thing with a few orgs on both sides, largely kind of just like slight like empirical studies on both sides. Not a, not a huge deep you know like ethicsy discussion. Right to Pothoratory reproduce strikes me as like an LD topic, but like a bad one. <laughs> it's, it sounds like someone's parody of what a bad LD topic would be. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, how do we like make this so that no empirical studies could ever matter? Um, but like no fils and like pretend like there's philosophical argumentation on both sides, but there's none. It's like it's like ethics bowl. That's what it reminds me of. It's ethics bowl. <laughs> yeah, it's also I, I largely agree with that. I think there are some interesting issues that are related kind of to what this topic is supposed to be getting at but this wording isn't yeah those things and those things are hard to get at which is why the wording is bad um but sometimes there's a tendency i think sort of chase these kind of really hard to pin down 
sort of ideas that you know people on the topic committee or in the community want to talk about, but can't really quite get there with a with a concrete wording. We just kind of shrug our shoulders and say like they'll figure it out. And I think that's sort of what where this ended up. And uh, Jacob, your PF point I think is is very valid, especially with the pharmaceutical advertising topic. It's so small. It's so kind of currents of NC, but not really. It's like not really a live political issue, but it's a very small public policy issue. Childcare at least is, is bigger, even though I, I get your point. It's like something that was in the presidential primaries when we were talking about this and was in the news and then got put into a topic. But at least it's big-ish. I will say on the whole, I think that this year has had some pretty above average topics. I think March, April is the exception. And I guess it makes sense that like you, you shove the lowest quality topics in March, April, because it's known that few people to debate. But uh, on the whole, I've been pretty happy with the topic choices this year, both the ones that were chosen and the other options, I think, for mm-hmm. um, setback through JanFeb. I mean, I actually think that childcare is a perfectly debatable topic. Like it is, I think, pretty close to an ideal March, April topic. If, if only it invited a little bit more philosophical discussion slash debate, but even still, it's not like you're not going to get your classic Rawls v. Nozick stuff that you're going to get on every lay debate. So uh, to that extent, like I actually think it's fine. There are some sort of interesting traditional LD value stuff you can get into, I guess, right? Like obligations toward, like community obligations towards raising of children, things like that could be avenues in that direction, I suppose. Well, I mean, speaking of um, universal childcare, weren't you the one that uh, proposed this topic? Um, what made what made you uh, want to submit it? Uh, so, yeah, I guess I'll take credit for it. Um, I also submitted like 40 to 50 topics. And generally what I'm doing there is just trying to get like big categories of things on the agenda and see where they go. Because the way the topic process works is we can only, as a committee, make topics that are out of something that is submitted, right? We can change them, we can play with them, we can narrow or broaden them, but they have to have like a kernel of something that was there. So I try to just sort of shotgun a bunch of big categories out there to give us things to work with. And, it, you know, we have a lot of education topics, higher education, K through 12, but we almost never talk about issues that deal with younger children. Uh, and that's like a very important societal issue that's sort of overlooked. And I think this is the most live political conversation um, in that area, I guess. Yeah, that's fair. So, uh, all right, maybe background on the topic then. So. I think the phrase United States ought to guarantee, uh, it's got to be like an LD staple at this point in time. But the part that I think, you know, most obviously trips people up is universal childcare. And I think there are like probably at least two um, interpretational issues that uh, need to get dealt with, because I do think they radically change how the debate goes down. Um, Maybe the first is just what is childcare? And I, it's not really clear that there's an obvious one answer here. It seems like there's a bunch of different people that think that childcare, um, in some form or fashion, could include or exclude things like, you know, giving people a bunch of money to raise kids on their own, um, subsidizing daycare centers, uh, free lunches in schools, universal pre-K is a big one. Like, does the topic include, exclude those? And to what extent is the interpretation of what childcare is even relevant for the debate? My impression, I think, if I had to, to pick what seemed to be the best definitions in the literature is the universal child care has to include an aspect of the government is funding some sort of program that allows your kids to be watched while you're not there. So 
it could be, you know, the government subsidizing privately run things like they give you money to go afford childcare from a private facility that that counts. And I think that those facilities can also have educational components. Like if you're putting your kid in a full time preschool, it is still childcare that also it's education. So the fact that it is like maybe primarily viewed or is or intended as an educational institution doesn't make it not child gear, but it's got to be like your, your kids are getting watched. So I, I don't think that funding food for uh, young children would count as universal child care, even if you're caring for the child in some sense. Yeah, I think that's a pretty straightforward distinction to make that I hope no students, you know, play games with. Child care is a pretty clear category, I think we can sort of argue around the edges, but I don't think it includes anything that cares for a child. I think that's pretty straightforward, any commonsensical understanding of the word. Well, one would hope that that's obvious, but it's never, it never is. I, th I think the part that's probably most contentious to me is the universal pre-K part, um, because like it, you know, it seems like a lot of more leftist proposals for universal childcare are like very stringent and, and demanding about putting in universal pre-K as like a quote unquote great equalizer or whatever. But it's not clear to me that childcare has to include that by any stretch of the definition. Um, and then I think that just kind of like begs the question of like, what is like what strategic incentive or disincentive does the affirmative have to like specify particular examples of universal childcare? Like, would it be strategic for an AF to just basically say the one thing that we think is universal childcare is like universal pre-K and just like read a universal pre-K AF and like the NEGS prep is going to be a lot less applicable than like a subsidized daycare facilities. Um, yeah. Well, my answer for specification is going to be the same that it is on most topics, which is certainly affirmative is not required to specify, but it is often strategic to do so. You know, you know, if you don't want to get saddled with the most generic or perhaps, you know, the worst versions of child care, then offer a specific example of how you think that can go down that can improve upon those general problems. E.g., I think there's discussions of whether maybe if you require licensing, does that improve or um, harm the effectiveness of the program? And if they ask, like, well, we license them with certain conditions and certain requirements for, like, you know, student to caretaker ratio that in ensures quality where maybe other past ones have failed, something like that. Yeah, I think this is a topic where there are a lot of proposals out there. If you actually go and look, like lots of senators, Congress people have very specific proposals for what this would look like um, that I think provide fertile grounds for some plan specification that would actually be you know, constructive as opposed to destructive like they have been in other topics. Um, universal pre-K question, I think is in, in so Lawrence, are you saying people would run asks that are just universal pre-K? Yeah, I, I think mean, most people who talk about universal trial care would say pre-K is part of it, but wouldn't stop there. I think anyone who has a universal child care program, that wouldn't just be universal pre-K. Those are two separate things. Um, one, like a subcategory of the other in those larger proposals sometimes. I, so I agree that most of the proposals out there have pre, universal pre-K as a sort of condition or just like a possibility mm -hmm. or, or, or program attached onto it. Childcare, but like, would the affirmative be wrong to just say, well, one way to guarantee universal childcare would just be universal pre-K and just refuse to defend anything else? Like, would that make them not topical or what? That's a good question. I think I slightly lean towards the negative on whether or not just universal pre-K is topical. Um, that being said, I can also see this being a little bit hard to articulate a very clear threshold for. Because obviously universal child care doesn't mean that everyone up to the age of 18 is eligible for the program and it doesn't always include like infants or anything like that. So there is some relatively arbitrary age that we have in mind, like right before school starts. And if, if pre-K is like one year of that age range instead of like a two or three year age range, then 
Like, is that objectively the wrong interpretation? It's, it's, it's hard to, you know, very clearly establish as a negative what the parameters are that the F is failing to meet if they, if they just defend pre-K for a year. Yeah, that seems right. So the other term, universal, I think, might actually pose more challenges than the childcare portion. Like, you know, at the very least, we can agree that, like, not everything that takes care of a child is childcare, but, like, childcare does need to ensure that the children are watched when the parents aren't around sort of thing. But then there's the term universal. Like, I feel like they put it into the topic to try to make it more clear and then ended up actually making it less clear as to what universal childcare is. And I think the reason is because, and, you know, maybe you have different thoughts about this than I do. It's because I think there's like two ways that the term universal is used in the literature. One is like universal by outcome, which is to just say that everyone gets universal, like will get some access to childcare some way, one way or another. Um, or universal by guarantee, which is that everyone is guaranteed it regardless of whatever. So like universal versus um, like universal outcomes versus non-universal outcomes or universal by coverage versus means testing by coverage. And like, I think that's not clear. Yeah, this is the same sort of discussion that happens with universal healthcare topics too. And this kind of topic ambiguity, I actually don't have a huge problem with compared to other things we've discussed in the past, because it actually also mirrors like substantive discussions that happen on the policy of, well, what are we actually talking about when we're talking about universal healthcare, for example? And they're just different ideological points of view about what it means to uh, create universal access to a program, whether means testing is okay or not okay when you're creating a, a public uh, program. And because those are like real views that exist out in the literature and real questions about what it means to construct a universal welfare state program, I don't have a problem with that being a topicality question that is posed on the topic, it mirrors a real life discussion. And I think it's totally, it, it's, I think it's actually positive for that reason. Just to define that term, because I think it's important and you know, maybe not every student's familiar with it, a means tested program versus a, mm -hmm. a non-means tested one. It, that basically trades on whether or not the program uh, you know, checks for whether you're say below a certain income threshold or meet some other criterion to get access to the program. So for example, like a universal basic income that cuts a check of $1,000 a month to every single person is not means tested. Whereas a program that gives food stamps to people below a certain income threshold is means tested. They're, you know, they're testing for like, what are your means uh, and whether or not you need the, the program. And so this is actually in general in social services very important and will show up on this topic as well is there's this discussion of whether or not childcare is more effective if you just let every child in or whether you give it to kids below you know a certain say like the poverty line or something like that yeah so one ex one example outside of child care that i'll bring back to child care to illustrate this difference is the debate over uh, free college or college uh, debt you know forgiveness so you hear the two sides of this discussion are that we should college be free for everybody, maybe if they're going to a public university, or we should forgive like $50,000 of everyone's student debt, no matter how much money they make, what school they go to. And the general idea there um, for non-mean-tested universal programs, maybe like Medicare, uh, Social Security, is that they tend to be more politically resilient over time because everyone has a stake in them, even though you know a billionaire doesn't need Social Security or Medicare. The fact that they get them and people who have slightly more money get them makes them more politically resilient versus you know, the discussion you hear on uh, free college. Really, we're going to pay for billionaires, kids, millionaires, kids to go to college. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. We could save money by means testing and people actually use it. And so that's a real life discussion that happens across 
lots of social programs, and it's also reflected in a lot of the proposals on universal childcare. So there are some people who basically say we should have government-run right, childcare centers all over the country that anyone could be enrolled in for free. And there are others who say you should just get like a voucher essentially to take around to any childcare provider. Uh, and those would be means tested by the income of the parents. The problem is, is like, I don't really think there's a good way to figure out, you know, which, let, let, let me put it this way. If one app says universal childcare, it's, but it's means tested. So everyone, you know, under, let's say 200% of the poverty line, like gets um, some number, some amount of money to like, or a voucher to redeem. And then another app is just like straightforwardly universal by coverage, which says, regardless of income, you get to use a government subsidized uh, childcare facility, just like you get to attend the public school, regardless of your income. I mean, the negative arguments against both those positions are like quite radically different, I think. Um, because the difference between the first affirmative case and and most counterplans the negative might want to read is like pretty minuscule, honestly. Um, and the difference between the second affirmative case, which is universal by coverage, and um, uh, like most negative counterplans is much larger. And I don't know if I like a topic that forces in lay circumstances, like two totally different sets of negative prep. Um, like I'm totally fine with it in like the circ context, do, cut cars, do prep, but I'm not sure if I like it that much here. I'm not sure how much I agree that it changes the negative prep burden radically. I do think it's very different with respect to one set of negative arguments, the one you listed, which is means testing is potentially a very strong negative case versus the true universal F. And if the F says out of the gate, I'm defending a means-tested program, and this is functionally universal because wealthy kids can afford childcare anyway. Uh, then they are short-circuiting the negative access to this one core argument. That being said, I feel like some of the other arguments in the literature, you know, for example, just like the kind of the childcare, good and bad in general. Should the government have a role in it? Is it better to just give individuals, you know, say, you know, extended leave policies so they can take care of the kids themselves? Other alternatives are not going to be particularly affected by that distinction, just because it's going to trade on whether or not. Uh, basically just like child care good as a, as a, a government run program. Yeah. I think the kind of counter plans you would still see, um, that we're going to see a lot of this topic work against both. So there's a lot of, you know, people will recycle things like universal basic income and other proposals from the past on this topic, but there actually is like a lot of, um, discussion in the literature about whether it makes sense to have all these like very narrow, uh, welfare program, welfare state programs, childcare, healthcare, like food stamps, all these different things that are narrow cast, as opposed to having some sort of universal, uh, credit that gives people flexibility. Um, so I think there'll be some, some interesting things you can still do regardless in terms of alternatives. Yeah. And I guess, um, maybe one way to make this a little bit more concrete is to like, look at the Warren plan that she put out, which was like mm -hmm. universal childcare and early learning plan or whatever. And like, it uses the phrase universal because it obviously intends to have a universal outcome, but it is means tested. And that I think contrasts well with the Sanders proposal, which is not means tested it's just truly universal. Um, and uh, there are some on the left that are just like, Warren's plan is clearly not universal. It's means tested. This doesn't count. And most people in the sort of middle are just like, yeah, this is obviously universal childcare. Why would you go any further left than this? Um, what is wrong with you? Uh, and uh, like, I think that's an interesting debate to have. I'm just not sure how it's going to play out in the context of like a compacted debate round where like each side has like strong incentives to like pick the one proposal that like most maximizes their ground and like, and uh, locks out the other person's ground. Well, like, you I'm, lock out some of their substantive ground, you open up ground at a, a, a theoretical layer, of course. 
You know, yeah, I'm sure that's a really quality recourse in a local tournament. Um. Uh, no, I mean, locally speaking, I think that there's often even a stronger disincentive to avoid squirrely cases. Because if the neg is just like, come on, judge, this ain't universal. Right, but if someone's like, yeah, here's the boring like, plan that says the word universal in the, in, in the name, like no judge is going to be like, nah, not, not evaluating that. You know, but it also, you know, if you go for a means-tested plan, you open up that ground to say means-testing. Social programs is a bad thing. Yeah, it's also but, if the ne- but if the neg just goes That's for like, we shouldn't, like, we shouldn't means test, like, I mean, truthfully, isn't that just going to lose to perm to the counter plan? That's also universal. Like, uh, if I wanted to make that offense for the negative, I'd probably go for something like the UBI, which exactly. is a strategy I think yeah, will be very consistent with saying means tested programs are bad. I, I have a strong feeling that the UBI like wouldn't actually solve a lot of the concerns that childcare is bringing up in particular. Like if the app's main arguments are like these daycares are like horribly underfunded. There's like tons of deserts where like there's um, no access to quality childcare. And like all these people are like not accredited slash their training is off and we don't pay them enough. I'm not sure how like give everyone a thousand dollars a month does anything about that. Um, well, with that in mind, we want to get into the specific arguments. Yeah, sure. Starting the F. Um, well, I guess what I mentioned right there is like probably the most straightforward set of F arguments, which is like childcare in the U.S. like objectively is awful. There's this great Weeds podcast um, from a couple of days ago that's just about the childcare crisis. And I would definitely recommend uh, listening to that as well. Uh, I'll link it in the show notes. But the main problem that obviously exists is childcare is super expensive. Um, childcare is not available to everyone because there are deserts where there's just no quality childcare, specifically in like rural areas. And uh, the childcare that does exist kind of sucks, partially because we don't um, have high enough standards for the workers and also partially because like there's not enough people that like want to go use it. And so there's like not enough or not enough people that can afford to use it. And so like not enough people who are... Uh, interested in like working at a childcare facility, especially since the pay for them is relatively low. So that's why like, things like the Warren and the Sanders plan are trying to do something about it, where they try to raise the standards and try to in- subsidize and encourage more um, childcare facilities and stuff like that. Um, and I think that's like really the bulk of the like AF arguments and everything else kind of stems off from there. Because in my mind, I think like the, the AF really from those sets of premises gets to gets to go in two directions. Either they get to like go something similar to like Rawls and they just talk about equality and like all that sort of stuff, or they veer off in the sort of like this impacts like labor force participation and has like a drag on a like drag effect on the economy or something like that. So do we want to start with one of those areas and talk about those arguments there? Yeah. More broadly speaking, I think you're getting it. What I, I take to be the two big classes of impacts for the AF or the negative. So the first is impacts to parents. This is the labor force participation stuff. Um, largely women's labor force participation and how daycare might increase, for example, women's ability to go get a job instead of staying at home with a child. And the second basket of issues is how it impacts the children. So I guess starting with the labor force participation part, I think the argument is pretty straightforward is childcare is really important if you want to be able to get a job because you can work full time if your child is taken care of. And uh, especially like not, not only in terms of like aggregate economic output is bolstered by a uh, higher LFP. Uh, you also have more of an equality effect of it, of, you know, it's like traditionally that burden mostly falls on women. Women get more jobs than oral child care is taken care of. And so there's also some sort of like sex equalization sort of benefits to it as well. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward, honestly. Like I, I do think that it's probably to some degree, just uh, a little bit easier intuitively to be AF because the arguments you make are just like, Hey, like, isn't childcare good? And like, shouldn't people have it? And people are probably like, yeah, like maybe, um, it seems reasonable at least. 
I think that like the labor force participation argument is like pretty strong. I mean, there's like really good studies that are like, here's like the billions of dollars that we're just like functionally losing from kicking this huge percentage of people out of the workforce. Um, and, uh, and it's not just labor force participation that has like that economic impact. It's also just like the cost of daycare itself is like an economic drag on, on families that like otherwise could be spending money in more productive ways. Um, but instead, a lot of it's just being lost. And I think especially for students, it'll probably be quite shocking how expensive childcare actually is. Looking at the numbers, it's pretty, pretty wild. So I just looked this up. The average cost of center-based daycare in the United States, so like a daycare center while the parents are working, is $1,200 a month. Oh my right? gosh, what? That's yeah. like more than my college tuition by right. like a lot. The, the median family in America makes just over $50,000 a year, right? So we're approaching $15,000 a year, just under a little bit, uh, for childcare out of $50,000 median income in the country. That's pretty wild. That's a huge chunk of a family's earnings. And then you can see why it might make sense for a lot of families to, instead of paying for childcare, one of the parents drops out of the labor force, like Neil said. Yeah, it's like just as costs are increasing, their income drops. And it's just like the worst possible relationship that you could imagine. Mm -hmm. I, I think that Weeds podcast I was mentioning earlier, like um, there's like a really good, good quote in the middle of it that's just like talking about how it's like literally exactly how you would expect a free market failure to happen. And this is like the most obvious example of when the, these sort of market failures occur and like how bad it can be. I do think the market failure aspect is kind of important if you're the affirmative for trying to explain why there'd be an economic benefit. You know, like why isn't this just a case of people, you know, correctly allocating their resources, for example, you know, by like saving money on daycare by taking care of their own kids and staying home. Because at the service level, at least, I think that there's a, a decent argument against at least some of the apps I've seen, um, some people make this like, I think kind of naive argument of like, oh, the GDP will increase a bunch just because there's more people in the labor force. And the problem with that is, you know, the GDP is a measure of how many people are working in the formal economy. And so it doesn't measure labor done privately. And so like, let's say I was taking care of my own child. And then instead of taking care of my child, I'll go get a job that makes me $15,000. And I spend that money on $15,000 of childcare. Well, all of a sudden, now I'm doing formal economic transactions to get measured. So we measure the GDP. Oh, look, the number's much bigger. But all I did was go do a different thing to pay for the thing I was doing anyway. And there's no real aggregate benefit. And so I think the, the superficial version of the affirmative uh, actually has less appeal than, than it might seem at first glance, because the GDP benefit is just kind of because GDP doesn't measure like domestic labor, which can have value. You know, like a parent taking care of their child is doing valuable work uh, in the same way that someone working a job is. And so I think what you want to point out is things like, you know, for example, you know, economies of scale, daycares are, are able to do that for a large portion of kids so that a bunch of people can work rather than each person taking care of their own one child. Or poor families, for example, can't adequately invest in their own child's future earnings due to, you know, liquidity, liquidity constraints. They can't afford to invest money and in long-term benefits to their child's education that pays off decades down the road, things like that, that explain why left to their own devices, you know, the, the economy isn't necessarily going to allocate those resources optimally. And that gets at, I think, a more robust version of an economic argument for the affirmative. Yeah, related there, Jacob, something you said that the childcare work that is done right now that isn't paid is still labor. That's just not counted in economic activity. So leads to another AF argument that I think is reflected in a lot of the proposals that are out there, which is under most of these universal 
childcare programs, you wouldn't actually be required to go out to the economy and pay for childcare. You could still choose under most of these proposals to have one parent stay home with the child and get some sort of monetary compensation for doing so. Uh, an argument for the affair could be that kind of work is societally valuable work. The whole society has an interest in the raising of children, just like we have an interest in the education of children. We all pay taxes for K through 12 education. And that work that is being done uh, has value that should be compensated. Uh, and a universal child uh, care program would still compensate for that labor, whether it's done by a parent or whether it's done um, by some you know, private or state-run daycare center. Another impact that derives from the sort of disparate way in which this impacts parents is also like amongst parents, like this hits obviously poor people the hardest, but also especially minorities um, who are unable to really participate in the market, who are unable to, you know, provide quality uh, care for their children. And, you know, that might have cyclical effects. And so if you want to read like a more Rawlsian or just like a quality-based type framework, I, th I think these arguments pair well nicely with it. Uh, I guess the the one last spin, I guess, that can be relevant is the sort of spillover benefits to having a job and staying in the labor force. For example, more independence. You have issues like domestic violence, for example, often is harder to escape if you are financially dependent upon a single bread earner, a breadwinner. Um, and having both parents stay in the labor force, for example, makes those sorts of relationships more equitable and less dependent. And so you can have benefits other than the economic ones, of course, for um, ensuring people are staying within the labor force and having their jobs and not sacrificing that. Um, because, you know, even just like a temporary gap, like if you just stay out of labor force for a year or two can affect your long-term earnings potential and your ability to, you know, go get your own job down the road that, that pays as well as if you just stay in the labor force consistently. I think there's a flip side to that as well that I can talk about, which is instead of just framing this as a labor force issue and sort of assuming that sort of the desires flow in one direction, you can make it more about the ability of parents to freely make these choices uh, in a way that they want to, uh, more free from economic constraints. So actually, if you look at survey data, for example, more parents would like to stay home for at least some of their um, kids' early years than actually do because of economic realities, right? They need the two incomes. You know, even though childcare is expensive for, for most families on aggregate, it still makes sense for both parents to work and to pay those costs as opposed to dropping out. It depends on the economic situation, but for most parents, that's true. Yet, if you look at the survey data, more parents wish that one of the parents could stay home than actually can. So I think you could make it both sides of this, right? People could stay in the labor force, but also they could drop out and get compensated for it, have that labor uh, reflected by some sort of payment from the state, and that would be freeing for them in that way. All right, impacts to children. Turns out, if you grow up in a bad environment um, with no, with no adequate supervision and no care, and uh, you turn out worse in life, shocking. Um, who would have ever thought? Uh, but I, but there's more to this, so you know, let's let's dive deeper into it. The the first thing I'll say is I was actually kind of shocked at how surprisingly weak the educational impacts are. Uh, yes. You can find some cards to the affirmative, but I was expecting this to be a bigger AF argument. And the studies just seem to be pretty consistent and just like these kids are not getting smarter in pre-K. They have short-term benefits that affect them for a year or two, but you measure it by like third grade and so forth. And it's already equalized with kids who weren't in pre-K. And so the educational benefits, I think, uh, that you might assume are beneficial, even in like explicitly educational programs, are actually kind of non-existent. Uh, I think the better set of AF impacts are more along the lines of what Larry was suggesting, which is that 
uh, there's long-term benefits to children of just like not growing up in poor home environments, being adequately socialized, et cetera. And so the, the subset of kids that otherwise wouldn't be getting like adequate care period are substantially benefited, not because of the learning part, but just because of the like being in a healthy environment part. And I remember there's like a decent number of, of cards to this effect that are like, even when you look at the like educational institutions, like pre-K and stuff like that, what you see is zero educational impact that's measurable. And yet they perform well very later in life compared to their peers. What's the explanation? Well, it's that the benefits to pre-K weren't actually the education. It was the, because they were getting education, they also were in a safe environment with you know adults around and so forth. And that had benefits to them. And so I think the better set of AF arguments is along those lines. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, yeah, I, I remember like briefly digging into the universal pre-K stuff when writing the topic analysis. And I was like shocked at just like how consistent it was at saying like, yeah, this just like doesn't have a measurable impact on uh, educational attainment. It just has a bunch of impacts on everything else. Yeah, one of the things I've seen in uh, that respect, Larry, is it's, I think most people who look at this would not say like pre-K does literally nothing. It's just that it's right. in the in the suite of things that happens in a child's life, it is swamped by other factors, right? You can even see this with like uh, most of the difference between the top performing high schools in the country and the worst performing high schools in the country cannot be measured by teacher quality. They are just correlated with a parent's income and educational attainment. And that just swamps everything else. And I think that's a similar effect probably happening uh, in these studies. That too. I have seen a few, like, I, I won't say there's no AF literature. I've seen some studies, and I think the, the better AF cards are at the very least in the context of very low income children. Uh, you can see some measurable effect on educational quality. And so you, you can find education impacts, especially like in a sort of an equity level of like making sure everyone has a, a, a certain bare minimum access to education. Because while it might not benefit the average child, it does seem like at the very least there there are some plausible studies suggesting it benefits the the least well off children. Mm. I could I could also say because of um, what I was just talking about with parental income and educational attainment being really important, that some of the economic impacts we discussed that impact parents could also be uh, spun in terms of the way that those impact a child and their long term uh, prospects as well. Right, that economic burden is relieved from parents. The stress in the household goes down. That money is freed up for other uses. That should um, based on other information we know, positive impact children in the long run as well. Yeah. The last main thought I had was, I think part of the reason for that differential, like, you know, just explaining why does, you know, the educational benefits of, of pre-K accrue a lot more to like the, the poor kids and the rich kids, et cetera, is just comparing what alternative existed otherwise. Because like realistically speaking, a lot of these times, uh, universal childcare for the average kid is replacing informal child care, like they're getting taken care of by grandparents or, you know, a parent staying home, both of which can be, you know, still pretty valuable and achieve most of the same benefits. And so the 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 biggest benefits are coming when you're not just like replacing informal daycare with formal daycare, but like kid who isn't being taken care of in, you know, a, a broken household or something to that effect and getting them out of that environment. And so it, it benefits some kids a lot. And so I, th I think the, the best AF arguments just in general are going to focus, or at least at the, at the you know, child impact level, are going to focus on that of just like, it's not that like on average kids do better in daycare than being taken care of by parents, but there are some kids falling through the cracks and the universal program is key to catch those children. That's a pretty good point, Jacob, that I don't think we fully appreciated here too, is basically every kid is getting childcare somehow, 
right? Like they're being watched. It just is happening. It might be a burden. It might not be an ideal situation, but it's happening obviously somehow, whether that's a neighbor, a parent, a grandparent, uh, a daycare center, a nanny, like something is happening where these kids are being supervised in the vast majority of cases. So it's not like universal childcare goes from no supervision in most cases to supervision. It's really more to me about sort of the economics of it and, and, and the quality, I suppose, as well. Yeah, I mean, and speaking of quality, uh, good, good way to transition into the negative set of arguments here. Um, I'll start by saying that I thought when this topic came out, this would just be like a dunk for the AF because if the topic is functionally just like, is childcare good, then like you would imagine that any competent AF should be able to win that. But then you dig deeper into the topic. And I think Nails and I were talking about this earlier. It's like, actually the negative arguments here are surprisingly solid. Um, so maybe we can get to the sort of counter plans slash alternatives later, but maybe let's start with like one of the most core arguments, which is just, it's not about the you know availability of childcare per se, it, or the access even, it's about the quality of that childcare. Um, and I think those studies are, are surprisingly good. I, I, Nails, I think you're the one that cut the card. So like maybe you know a little bit more about these uh, Baker, Mulligan and Gruber studies than I do. Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll, first I'll echo the thing you said at the beginning is, I definitely went into this topic being like, this does seem like a, b- a bit of a slam dunk for the affirmative. Uh, I was ex- expecting to be kind of one-sided on like, is caring for children good? <laughs> oh, if so, then maybe we should make sure the kids get that. Um, and the, the neg literature is is definitely better than I gave it credit for. I think I'm probably still net on the AF side, but like I'm I'm much more uh, of the thing. There's a debate to be had at the very least, and there's good cards on both sides. Um, so now the specific cards that Lawrence is talking about is there is a, a not insubstantial and not unconcerning body of literature. That's just like daycare can have really bad effects on kids uh, as compared to other alternatives. And I remember the, the first time I came across this, I was cutting a, a card that I thought was supposed to be for the affirmative because it was listing off like educational impacts for the children. And it just kind of mentions offhand, oh yeah, and they like get more aggressive and antisocial and like doesn't feel the need to unpack that. Like I was like, that's gotta be a shocking like revelation, whatever. You, you found that daycare is causing these, the antisocial behaviors. But the reason that study had to unpack it is because already kind of like a general theme in the literature is there's not bad evidence that kids who are in these environments are just more likely to uh, be like poorly socialized, which is, I don't know, counterintuitive to me. I didn't expect it. But like they're they're more aggressive. They have more non-cognitive issues. Um, non-cognitive here meaning like not measurable educational attainment, but like behavioral type problems. Mm-hmm. And that maybe just putting kids in a big daycare program is like not the best option for them, uh, as as opposed to, for example, leaving them with a relative or something to that effect. Uh, and again, those studies are like you wouldn't you wouldn't expect them to be that good, but like they're not bad. A lot of them in the context of Canada. I believe there's a Quebec program that uh, was in, rolled out. And when people started to look at the studies coming in, they're like, this is not working very hot um, for all these poor Canadian kids. It increased crime, for example. Like, you wouldn't think that, but like kids in the Canadian daycare program were more likely to commit crime and stuff like that. And yeah, th- that, that exists in the literature. Yeah, those uh, Baker, Mulligan, and Gruber studies, like, I mean, first of all, they're shockingly good. And second of all, there are a lot of them. Like they've done meta-analysis on their own studies um, because... Uh, when they first came out with the study, everyone was like, this can't be right. And so like, no, no, watch us prove it. And so they looked at other studies and did meta-analysis on this. And so they have like 2018 or 2019 meta-analysis. They have a 2008 article that everyone really likes to cite. They, I think they might even have stuff from like the, from the 90s. Um, they've been doing this for forever. 
Can you fill me in on this a little bit? What, what exactly were they studying? What was this Canadian program? Was it a universal program? Like what, what was happening? Yeah, let me find a, a good example. Uh, I, th- I think this, this card should answer your question. This is from Erickson in 2018. Um, in 1997, when Quebec, Canada launched full-day year-round child care for all children under the age of five, the title of its policy brief read, Children at the Heart of Our Choice. The assumption was that the government subsidized universal daycare uh, would provide all children the benefits for a healthy start in life, while simultaneously uh, enabling more women into the workforce. Within 10 years, comprehensive analyses of the universal $5 per day child care program, including its impact on child care use, employment patterns, and children's and parent outcomes, suggested cause for concern. Social development among children, as indicated by both emotional and behavioral measures, had significantly deteriorated in Quebec relative to the rest of Canada. Comparison between children's age two and four who'd been exposed to the program with older children and siblings who had not revealed significant increases in anxiety, hyperactivity, and aggression in those exposed to the program. And the analyses found more hostile, inconsistent parenting and lower quality parental relationships among parents of children exposed to the program. So I think reading between the lines here, um, my hypothesis for why this sort of makes sense would be, like we said earlier, kids are being watched now. And in a lot of cases, those are uh, parents, grandparents, family members, neighbors, smaller groups with a closer connection to the kid. And so even though there are pretty bad knock-on economic effects, I could see how being taken from that environment into a larger environment of a daycare center, maybe with less supervision per child and people who are not uh, a friend, a neighbor, a relative, but rather a, an extremely low paid childcare worker could could lead to those results, which I think is a pretty good um, argument for the day, but also I think is in some ways an argument for a lot of the apps that are being proposed that right now childcare centers are really poor quality and a universal program gives the government sort of a, a cudgel to increase standards and pay. So what, what part of the like a pillar of the Warren program is, for example. So I could see that being a discussion is taking people from these more informal arrangements to daycare centers is bad, but the app increases the quality of daycare centers overall. Like how does that weigh out? Yeah, and I think it's important to note that Mulligan has written follow-up papers kind of independently because he's uh, he's actually like an advisor to the Canadian Liberal Party. So it's not like he's like a strong core libertarian is like, God, how dare you take my tax money to fund these child centers? Although that is a reasonable negative argument too. It's just that his his point is just like, it's all about design. It's like all about quality. It's all about where the incentives are. Because like Mulligan admits, like on one sense, uh, or in, in, in one sense, the, the program worked. Like a lot more people were entering the workforce. This had a very high uptake rate. It was very attractive, it, but it was precisely because the uptake rate was so high and the sort of uh, government matching of like funds was a little bit low and like the design of the program was like subpar that it mm. resulted in all of these bad outcomes. And so, yeah, I think that like, so I don't think like Mulligan is like in principle opposed to it, but just like look at Quebec, he's defended the methodology over years and like all the results are consistent. And in fact, it's like, I think an accepted fact in a lot of this literature that everyone just like is, is just accepts that Baker and Bulligan and Gruber are just totally right about Quebec. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think picking back on something Chris just suggested is I do think it it's probably important to debate out the, like there's a number of potential underlying causes, some of which are more or less intractable. 
So, for example, if the negative wins, maybe just the main reason is because, you know, parents or close relatives are you know, more directly and emotionally invested in the children and are going to put in more effort than someone who's just only contractually obligated to watch for your kid. Then that's not something that's necessarily solved, but it's demanding, you know, various standards and ratios and so forth. Um, conversely, if the affirmative is able to win that these problems aren't inherent to child care programs, but are just because they're underfunded or understaffed. Like I've seen some studies that suggest mandating certain child to caregiver ratios can improve the quality. And that that's kind of the main reason for these studies right now. Well, now it's something that could be fixed with good policy design. You know, you put a little bit more money, more money into it and make sure that they meet some minimum standards. And then all of a sudden, maybe the problems reduce or go away. And so I, I think which of those is the, the main cause or to what degree uh, they're influencing it is going to affect how, you know, intrinsic to daycare it is. There, there's also another factor there, though, um, that I think needs to be taken into account, which is regardless whether the app happens or not, there's a lot of kids that are currently in daycare, right? So if the negative argument is daycare is bad, putting slightly more kids in it would be bad for them. And the app argument is, yeah, maybe daycare is not as good as these other options, but tons of kids are already in it. Maybe the majority of kids are already in it. And if we use this program as a, as a federal like hook into raised standards overall, more kids are still helped uh, when we net it out. It could be the case that daycare is worse than other options, but if we improve the quality of daycare from where it is now, more kids benefit. Yeah. Uh, as the negative, I think this argument probably works best if paired with some alternative. So for example, uh, you know, there's various policies to make you know, parents taking care of their own children easier or relatives doing so, things like that. So for example, uh, the United States is not very good at guaranteeing parental leave relative to other countries. You know, if you want to take off work for a bit and take care of your own young child and then into the workforce, there's not as many um, protections for employees who want to do that. Uh, and if you're losing out on income because of doing that, there's not really any recourse. So for example, alternative slew of policies could be something along the lines of a child tax credit that gives you money when you're, you know, for uh, your young child so that you are not taking a big income hit if you leave the market, plus protections for, you know, guaranteed parental leave might mean that, you know, many parents just voluntarily choose without harm to themselves to take time off to take care of their own kids. And then you have, you know, the children still get taken care of, the parents aren't as financially impacted, and you don't have to put them in a daycare that is potentially harmful to their own long-term development. Yeah, I think uh, another alternative there, in addition to the child tax credit, is there's a lot of proposals for a universal child allowance, which is similar, except you don't get it um, at tax time. You literally get it as a, a check every month. Even, I think, Mitt Romney came out with a plan a couple weeks ago that was, I think, a $300 a month, which is essentially a UBI for parents. Um, and some version of that could also be maybe argued as a counter plan, depending on what the F. Half is. Yeah, definitely. I think that that gets to the same thing that the tax credit solution does. And <laughs> the, the phrase universal child allowance sounds less like a UBI for parents and more like a UBI for kids. Like yeah, every kid gets ice cream money. Um, but definitely, I, th I think the idea being described there is a good one. And a, a good argument that, you know, is probably in a more libertarian vein there is it gives parents the choice, like, for some parents who maybe just don't think that they're good at taking care of kids or really do value their jobs or for whatever reason do want universal daycare, they can take that money and invest it in daycare. And so it captures the benefits of the affirmative of daycare for the parents who want it and then ability to, to care for their own child without detriment to themselves or their earning potential for the parents who don't, rather than specifically inflating the value of daycare relative to other options, which 
maybe we shouldn't be doing if daycare is not the best option. Yeah, I mean, I think all those combinations, like any of those alternatives, they sound good to me. Like, you know, again, we were talking earlier about how we thought this topic would be one-sided, but honestly, I'd be totally fine rolling in with just like some counter plan slash alternative in traditional debate. Um, and then just like some turns about quality on case. And uh, I think that's like a fairly solid NR option. Um, I'd be totally happy to be neg. Indeed. I guess one, one more point on that before moving on is topics like this, I think, uh, quite frequently provoke the, the generic libertarianism neg case uh, that I'm, I'm sure anyone who's debated the various, I don't know, like universal basic income topic or the free access to housing topic or the, the food security, all the like government provides guaranteed things. The, the most common neg arg is government shouldn't be involved in this thing. You know, let each individual choose for themselves. And I do think the generic version of that that shows up on most topics is going to be weaker on this topic than most because it's in the context of like young kids. And so less so than housing and jobs and so forth, you can't just be like, well, why don't the kids just work harder and provide their own daycare and so forth? You know, like for, for, for young kids, there's not going to be much of an argument for, you know, have the, their own responsibility or whatever, and you can't blame them for poor parenting and whatnot. There's a much better argument for government having some role in general. And there's a lot of good evidence that if the government wants to tackle inequality, early childhood might be the easiest place to start because the spillover benefits and so forth and less perception of unfairness. Uh, and so I think if, if you're the negative and you want to take that sort of libertarian tack of just like, you know, small government is best. I don't think you want to be in the position of just like government shouldn't care for kids because I think the ask got a pretty compelling point there. I think you want to have some of these you know, proposals that offer a, a solution that gets at that but with still some sort of libertarian principles, e.g. like the Romney plan that Chris was discussing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, I think, for example, it is deeply ingrained, and I think anyone who will be judging any of these debates, that public education, K through 12, is good, and it is not like a violation of liberty that the government provides public schools. And that analogy, I think, is pretty strong here, right? Um, government does that because we, as a society, have... Uh, a benefit from population being educated. Same thing can be argued for young children, right? Society gains from the care of everyone's children collectively. And it makes it really hard to, to make those arguments uh, on this topic. That is a good Sorry. analogy. Leda does love analogies. For any of yeah. y'all who are competing like a district tournament and it's really lay or whatever, have, have some analogies prepped. Like I, I, I do sure. not exaggerate when I say that like at, at local tournaments, the prep I would do is like, I would come up with like good new analogies to break. <laughs> Like yeah. more advantage is just like one persuasive example is the thing that the judge is going to remember and they're going to forget the rest of the flow and they're going to vote on like that intuitive example used in cross i I'm not right. even exaggerating this. I, I definitely think it is impossible to bite that bullet. No, we shouldn't have K through 12 education and waited like 99% of judges um, who are yeah. judging debates, presumably most of them working for public high schools, which is very strange. And that analogy I think is, strong and could lead to some fun cross exits. So like the government is totally reasonable and in fact obligated to care for children when they're five, but when they're four, it's like none of their business. They need to stay out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a real good, real good argument. Yeah, and I think what compounds um, the disincentive to read libertarianism on this topic, or at least the sort of like, how dare you like tax people that pay for children version of it um, is that 
there's actually no libertarians that are like explicitly against it on these principles. Like obviously all the libertarians hate it, but like on economic grounds, like it costs too much or like the distortionary effects of government intervention in the, in the market or like the quality concerns that they have. Like, in fact, those Baker Mulligan and Gruber studies are probably going to be more often cited in a debate round by some random author writing for some like libertarian think tank who just like pulls up the Baker Mulligan and Gruber studies and just like pretends like it's their own work. Um, so that way they can avoid, um, falling prey to the obvious uh, indicts to that ev in a debate rank. So you have to like figure out if, you're, if they're actually citing that study. Um, but there's no ev on this, right? Like it, it, it's actually kind of weird because it's like the federal jobs guarantee topic where like there is no article that explicitly said like this violates a core libertarian principle, unlike UBI or welfare or living wage or something like that. And so that should be like another disincentive against reading this. So could we actually real quick, I haven't done tons of research on this topic. Where has it been done besides Quebec? I know Nails, you said, I think Neil, uh, Lawrence listened to that same Reed po Reed's podcast that you did, and they talked about how during World War II, we like stood up a universal child like, daycare system like overnight and then dismantled it for no reason. Yeah. Uh, That's I'm the Lanham Act. Is there any research on that, whether that was good or bad? Yeah, Lanham Act is huge. It's, it's mentioned in most of the sort of pop article, like pop uh, literature articles, like uh, The Atlantic has a good piece about the Lanham Act. There's even an entire website dedicated to it because it, like the Lanham family is just like, this is our legacy. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, like we, we had examples. like affordable health, uh, not healthcare. I, I actually accidentally wrote healthcare in one of my topic analysis papers because I keep, every time I type universal, I just want to call it healthcare. <laughs> um, but yeah, like uh, uh, we had it in the US during World War II when we were just like, oh shoot, like we need women to work to like produce our weapons for World War II. And then as soon as it was over, like, you know, under the Nixon administration, we could have had a uh, um, universal childcare as well. And they're just like, nah, you don't get it. Um, Sorry, what I took from that is universal childcare is key to hegemony. Mm -hmm. Yes, if we had universal childcare, it would free up more people to go to war. It's a, a, a readiness issue. Yeah, so beyond that, um, yeah, Scandinavia, Norway, for example, is the subject of a number of these studies. And then lastly, there's like partial programs in the United States. Head Start. Head Start is the name of a partial program that often gets studied and then extrapolated um, that provides, you know, some access to education for some underprivileged youth, but is not universal. Right. And then we have like two other things that like the U.S. is loosely doing to try to make child care affordable. So those would obviously be the child tax credit um, and the child care and development block grant. And so the, the former obviously is just the tax credit. Um, and that's, I think, I don't know if this is actually still being debated or not, but I thought like there's a proposal to expand it underneath a stimulus plan to like 30, up to 3,600 per child, depending on your uh, uh, income. And yes, then the, and the, the actual key part of that, this is very in the weeds, but one thing that people might not know if they're, uh, the child credit tax credit is what's known as a non-refundable tax credit, which means if you owe zero dollars, you don't get the tax credit as positive money. It just allows you to subtract from your tax obligation, which means for the vast majority of poor people in the country, it is non-existent because they don't owe taxes or owe very little, which is which is why, uh, yeah, it is in the stimulus bill. And because they make it refundable in the stimulus bill, the um, projections are it would wipe childhood poverty in half. Yeah, and then the other thing is uh, the child care and development block grant, which is, um, it provides uh, childcare to very small numbers of eligible families who are who are too poor. And so like theoretically, like that's supposed to scoop up whoever's missed by the child tax credit, but like in practice, does that work? No, uh, clearly not. One more set of negative arguments that I think we already uh, alluded to earlier is means testing. 
This one, of course, there is you know some debate as to whether or not this is negative ground or not. So, for example, the Warren plan we mentioned uses the words universal when describing itself and is nonetheless means tested only you know given to, to people who are below a certain income threshold. But supposing you're the negative, if you can win the claim that you know universal means universal and they have to defend the, the more universal versions of the program, then something along those lines becomes a, a viable alternative. And there is good evidence, for example, that you know, most of the benefit of these programs is accruing to low-income children, kids who otherwise are not getting quality care, and that's not all of them. And it's more effective and more efficient if you, you know, just target a, sp a specific subset of kids rather than providing it universally to everyone. I remember actually finding some studies that suggested that uh, childcare ends up being regressive because middle and high income parents are more likely to take advantage of the subsidized childcare. And obviously that's going to be a problem in a world where everyone can access it. And so maybe you have a more targeted version. Yeah, I mean, uh, assuming the AF is forced to defend universal means everyone gets it, like public school sort of thing, um, then yeah, I think means testing as a counterplan is totally fine. And I think it's a lot better than it was on maybe like previous topics that were universal in nature, like namely the UBI. Um, like a lot of the benefits of the UBI were explicitly designed around the fact that it was universal. And like, that's where all of the like best AF arguments were. Here, like the better AF arguments are less around like it being universal and more around like the need to just help poor and minority families. And obviously means testing is one way you could target that issue. Now, a related one, one related issue here is part of the reason that middle and high income families are more likely to benefit from these universal programs. I believe these are in the context of Norway, um, the studies that I'm referencing at least, is because a lot of times poor folks, they just don't use the program, maybe because they don't know about it or are skeptical of the government or something to that effect. But it, it just kind of, it seems that a lot of the times the people who end up taking advantage of the policy when it's provided are not the least well off, even though those are the ones who benefit. And so you also have this sort of like information access problem of like, how do you get people to know about it and trust it as opposed to rely on informal back channels and so forth, like, you know, giving the child to your grandparents, that sort of thing. I would also imagine that employment plays a role in it, right? Like if you're poor and unemployed, like <laughs> there's no opportunity cost to staying home and taking care of your child. Like why would you throw them into a daycare? And so like, I could imagine that's part of the lower uptake rates as well. Something has to do with program design as well though, right? So um, something like a, a means tested program that gave you like tax, a refundable tax credit to pay for childcare would probably have much lower uptake because it's complicated to get. You have to file your taxes. A lot of people don't file any taxes. Um, you have to know to ask for the credit and then you have to budget it over the course of the year correctly. Whereas something that's super simple, like public daycare centers that are state run that you can enroll your kid in like a public school. Like they reach out to you like schools do to say, hey, it's now time for your kid to go to school, enroll in the school. Um, would probably get much better uptake. So it probably depends on exactly what the app looks like, how potent of a challenge that is. Um, one thing that I, I think is kind of a combination of two things we said before, but not so much explicitly, is, you know, Chris was mentioning, I think it was when we were discussing the affirmative, that a lot of times when you ask people, many of them are not saying, like, I want more uh, non-parental daycare. A lot of them are saying, I wish I had more time to take care of my own kids. And so if you pull people in the abstract, what you get is a lot of people who are saying, you know, I wish the system made it easier for me to be with my own child rather than I wish it made it easier for me to be away from my child uh, and put them in daycare. And so there's just a kind of a, a decent claim about 
you know, what parents actually want and value that points in the direction of some of these counter plans we were discussing, like child tax credit type stuff, parental leave type stuff. And that maybe the issue of daycare isn't so much, we need more kids in daycare and more parents working, but a lot of these parents are, we want more ability to take care of our kids without taking the financial hit. And so I think one more potential benefit, just again, in the direction of some of these counter plans, child tax credit type stuff like that, is just at the level of like what a parents actually want and value, what what represents their interests, and just coupled with some claim that like you know maybe you should leave the final choice to the parents, and child tax credit type policies give more choice to parents rather than pre predetermining for them that daycare is the good choice that we should subsidize. Uh, that type of argument I think is one more benefit along those lines. Mm-hmm. You know, that might be one of the truest arguments in favor of one of these counter plans. And yet, like, because that argument doesn't have like a very obvious debate style impact, like I, I have strong doubts about whether or not it's going to get employed a lot, which is very unfortunate. It's just like one of those areas where the incentives of debate arguments and real arguments diverge. Um, yeah, I mean, cause that's obviously very compelling that people get what they want. Preferences are, are maximized in a way that relieves stress and makes everyone happier. It's obviously like a good thing to achieve from a policy. Yeah. Um, you're right. It's hard to put into words people get more of what they want and lead happier lives. Yeah, like it's just as likely that someone will like develop like a very narratively and rhetorically compelling way to explain like the value of parental autonomy and stuff as it is as, the, as they are likely to like read it with the polls and see and be like, the polls negate, you should vote for my counter plan. Like yeah, those are two no, equally right. likely options. No, in fact, I think no, polls negate is much more likely to be deployed and possibly succeed than the, the argument I think we all would in our everyday lives recognize is much more persuasive, which is, yes, some people want childcare, some people want to stay home. Economics of the situation make it very difficult for people to do what they want in a variety of situations. So we should give them money and let them make the choice the best for their family. Yeah, <laughs> I unfortunately can't disagree with that. Now, late, late debate, I think more so than, than others, you know, like if you're debating this at a small local district tournament, for example, I think you could probably get away with that pretty effectively, just the rhetorical appeal of it. Yeah, yeah. Most tournaments in this topic, I think we're probably gonna be more on the lay side, people's districts or states. I think basically just Texas is like the only place where like circuity debates are going to happen on this topic. Yeah, but everyone's just going to go for the cap K on there. They'll be like, you said labor force participation. That's capitalist. Um, <laughs> it is one tournament. Like, I don't really blame them for like, uh, you know, kind of wanting to n- avoid having to do that much prep while the TSC is still going on. Um, you know, Honestly, this makes me think this might have been a better topic for lay debate than circuit debate. So I think this might be good, a good match here. It might have also been a good nationals topic, surprisingly. I would have. I think I prefer this topic reason. over any of the three choices for nationals, which, yeah. which are, let me pull those up. Um, resolve the wealth tax is just. Resolve sin taxes are unjust. And resolve the public health emergency justifies limiting civil liberties. Now, the third one seems unwinnable as a negative. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> and the first two seem very boring. And just kind of like better, slightly better worded versions of the previous topic about uh, wealth inequality. Bring this back to Chris's original point. I do agree that like this topic is a pretty good fit for the largely local and lay debates that are going to happen in March, April. And I think the last three topics have been like pretty good topics in general. And so I feel like, I don't know, maybe this is just like good evidence that the, the change in topic selection that happened between last year and this year is it, it produced an increase in topic quality. I feel like we've we've done better than usual at choosing a slew of topics this year as compared with two years past. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's exactly right. I, you know, as maybe to, to around horn a little bit here to say, I think the topics were in general a little bit higher quality this year. I think that's largely because on the old system, you had to imagine that a topic could be picked for any slot 
which led to, you know, what if this is nationals or what if this is TOC? And you have to like make it kind of work for both, which means it doesn't work for either, um, which was sort of somewhat solved. And I think narrowing the choices and making the voting system simpler led to people making better choices between topics as well, rather than like the weird ranking system we had before. Um, one thing I would like to see change in the future is instead of just having a straight vote between the three, having it be ordinal. So we ensure that like the most overall preferred topic is chosen, right? So this topic was chosen with 38, 39% of the vote. If we eliminated the last place one there and then did a comparison between the next, the top two, maybe the result would have been different. I don't think so, but you can imagine a case where that's where that's true. And I think that would be a slight tweak that makes things better. Oh, strongly agree. I think a very non-hypothetical case is look at nationals. You got two tax topics that are going to split the vote between each other. And then a topic that seems worse than either, but could easily win because tax yep. people don't agree on which topic is best and can't coordinate effectively. Yeah, exactly. Right. But well, overall, I think the topic selection, as you two both said, much better. And I'm honestly, I like universal childcare as, as a topic for March, April. Like I'm not, it's not like I'm just okay with it. Like I actually think it's a great topic. Um, which is not what I thought when the topic first came out, which is a reason for why you should do your research first and important, uh, and then form your opinion second. Um, something that Nails is repeatedly- That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Uh, I want rage, uh, <laughs> rage tweets immediately. Nice. All right, cool. All right, I think that's uh, most, if not you know, everything <laughs> that is relevant for uh, the universal childcare topic, at least in most uh, traditional or lay circuits. And for those of you competing at TFA, I'm glad you stuck around for so long and uh, good luck going for the cap pay every single debate. Um, when we come back, uh, we'll do a conclusion. All right, that's our uh, episode. Hopefully this was helpful as you think through how to prep um, the universal childcare topic. And if you're debating this weekend, you know, hopefully this is uh, some last minute feedback that's uh, useful for you as you think through the strategy and the big picture about how to approach the topic. Um, please remember to submit your uh, episode suggestions, your questions or feedback with us at the forum that's linked below. And uh, thank you again to Victor Briefs for sponsoring this episode. Um, so it's been a while. Um, and I believe the last time that we were on to give recommendations, we talked a bit about chess. And yes, there is more chess. PogChamps3, hosted by chess.com, is, is out. But we'll avoid talking about chess too much and instead give two other recommendations. So for the first one, um, we'll talk about WandaVision, which I'm sure all of you have heard about, but I think Chris has a particular opinions on it. So, Chris? Oh, particular opinions. I have some opinions. In that, oh, okay. uh, I have an opinion, which is that it's good. Um, not a huge Marvel fan, but I've really enjoyed it. Like you, Lawrence, you were saying this before. I watch it immediately when it comes out, pretty much. Um, yeah. Really fun, like playing with different sitcom genres. And like, it's a very playful show, which I enjoy. Uh, not a usual Marvel tone, I think. It's been really good. Can you give me a real, like a synopsis? I know that it exists and people like it. But to me, like the title, it just sounds like a fan fiction that someone wrote of Marvel. Well, so we have to be careful about how we say this. <laughs> yeah. I would just say watch the trailer because that's the only thing that I can say is out there that guaranteed doesn't spoil anything. Okay. Um, just watch the trailer. Yeah, it's really hard to talk about without spoiling. Especially since um, we know things and I can't remember what I don't, what you shouldn't know at this point. Um, all right. And we're in the middle of the season. So like the information is not changing. Saturday, right? Or Friday? Uh, well, depends on what you define as Friday. Thursday night, I will stay up until uh, 1 a.m. <laughs> my local time. I don't know. Anyone who watches it and then discusses it before noon on Friday. I don't is, discuss it. I just should watch be it. banished. 
I, I just watch it so that when the reviews come out the next morning, I can see whether or not I agree with them. You know, but yeah, it's a great show. I especially appreciate the attention to detail. Um, is like aspect ratios changing and stuff like that. Like those are the sort of things that like I think most other TV shows like wouldn't even bother trying to get correct. And oh, they are totally totally nails the tone of each of the shows that it's inspired by in different yeah. different episodes. It's very very good. Elizabeth Olsen is actually really, I think, very good in this for that reason. Like very able to to switch it up. And then our second recommendation comes from Mr. Nails, who's a little bit behind on this. Uh, you know, we we saw this a while back, but whenever you get around to it, I guess you know, good enough for us. Yeah. So I, I recently got around to watching Soul, the Pixar movie, and uh, had a chance to update my rankings of Pixar movie quality. I, uh, I'm interested in what y'all think. I, I've heard a lot of people who saw Soul and they thought it was really emotionally moving. I actually didn't think it really came through in that department. I didn't feel particularly connected to the characters that are invested. It didn't, it didn't hit me like inside out hit me or anything like that. I still think it was a reasonably good movie. Um, mostly because it was funny. And it was kind of like culturally relevant, had a lot of jokes. Like Pixar is in general, like not bad at having jokes in there, but I thought Soul was funnier than average. Um, it's a movie that I, Less than others, I don't really want to rewatch it. Like, I don't think the plot was very captivating, but I enjoyed it when I watched it. And I think it's just funny. You watch it once, don't think too hard about the plot or it starts to fall apart. Uh, and so I'd say it's a solid C tier. I have it right below Onward and A Bug's Life and above Ratatouille and Brave, if you want to know where it stands ordinarily. Yeah, so I, I enjoyed it um, when I saw it, but I think I had some similar issues to you. I didn't feel super invested in the characters. And I think it's largely because, and I usually wouldn't say this, I think the plot like happens too quickly at the beginning before you're able to sort of develop an attachment. I don't want to like spoil things, but develop an attachment to the character and the way things are, where their life was or who they were before things kind of go wrong. Um, and so it doesn't really have as much of a, of a stake. Yeah, I was not anticipating like a whole like uh, uh, this is gonna be a big spoiler. Shoot, no. There's that, there's that whole plot in the middle in, involving the animals that I, did, I didn't see that coming at all. And I feel yeah. like maybe what wasn't worth it. If you cut that out, you have more time to do the, what seems to be the main main portions of the show. I did see some reviews be like, here's how you could easily sort of minor, like make some minor adjustments to the plot and like get a, I think, a much more coherent and developed story out of it. Um, and so I think I'm like on board with a lot of these sort of general criticisms, but, uh, but I'm also in, in, am in agreement that when I watched it, when it came out, you know, I certainly didn't dislike it. Like I watched yeah. the whole thing. It was very uh, entertaining. Um, you know, I thought as Nails mentioned, the, the jokes hit uh, harder than usual for a Pixar film. I, I thought the world building was like, okay. I, it's certainly definitely not Pixar's best work in that, that area, but it certainly didn't disappoint. Like it didn't make me regret watching the movie. And like, you know, as long as that's a thing, like I'm, I'm fine with it. I actually think the reason why I'm a little bit more frustrated with it than maybe otherwise would be is I think it had with a few small tweaks the potential to be much, much better. So if it was just like kind of a mediocre Pixar movie, I wouldn't really care about it. But the fact that it could have been much better and they just made a few choices that were bad makes it a little bit more frustrating than I think it probably should be. Yeah, I can totally see that. But oh well, go watch it. I mean, both of these shows are oddly enough on Disney Plus. Um, you know, if you don't have a subscription, you probably get on it. And if not, just steal one from your friend. That's uh, that's what Nick Smith does with my Disney Plus subscription. Um, just calling him out. Hey. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I like freely offered to him because he was like, "I want to watch The Mandalorian." I was like, "I will help anyone watch The Mandalorian." Um, give him my oh, great show. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, that's our episode for this week. Um, we'll see you next time.